You're listening to Inside Acting. To find out more and make a donation, visit InsideActingPodcast.com. Welcome to episode one, one ten. I don't have a rhyme for it. One ten. Uh, I don't think there is one. I don't think there is one ten of Inside Acting. My name is Trevor Alga, and I'm AJ Meyer. And on this podcast, we sit down with actors and writers and casting directors and agents and managers and personal finance gurus and filmmakers and professional organizers and musicians and life coaches and voiceover artists and anybody at all involved in the entertainment industry. Well, who did I forget? Um, I was gonna. All I was gonna cinematographers, add was sound people, sometimes two at a time. Yeah, that's right. Sometimes <laughs> two at a time. And we interview them and ask them questions about how they got to where they are and what their journey's been like. And then we sandwich uh, the interview with us chatting about our journey. And I'm just way too detailed now. Does, we, that, does you, that make us the bread? Yeah, it does. It makes us the bread. Are we the bread? We are the bread to the interview. We're just, the podcast bread. Uh, yeah, and we put it on the internet for you. And I'm just going to stop it now. We, we put bread on the internet. And uh, we are just two pieces of bread with a podcast. So There it is. Um, the deli sandwich. <laughs> the deli sandwich of yeah. the internet. So we don't pretend to know everything about uh, meat and cheese and condiments. So if you have uh, your own two cents you'd like to add, um, you can comment on the website or send us an email. Get started at InsideActingPodcast.com. That's right. And on today's episode, we have uh, a, a, a repeat guest, sort of, because he's joined by a new guest. We have Blake Robbins coming back to tell us a little bit more about uh, his journey making his film, The Sublime and the Beautiful, which I saw a little while ago, which was amazing. And he's joined by Armin Shimmerman, who's the actor who played Quark on Deep Space Nine. He's also, I believe, firmly entrenched with uh, Antia's Theater Company. So um, we don't really talk to Armin too much until the, the third part of this interview series that we're going to be having, but the first two are, are more Blake-heavy. But uh, that's coming your way in a little bit, so make sure you guys stick around. or so since we recorded our last episode, but uh, how you doing? What's new? A lot can happen in four days, Trevor Algett. You know what? I got my first two auditions back-to-back um, that I've had in a really long time. That happened. Theatrical uh, auditions? Yeah. Well, no. Theater. Oh, the- theater. <clears throat> theater. Not to be confused with theatrical. Not to be confused with theatrical. That was a really confusing thing. Okay, here we go. A little education in case people haven't picked up on it already. I think I said this in a previous episode, but theatrical in the biz is referring to film and television. And then there's commercial, which refers to commercials. And then theater is theater. Yeah. And, and it's like no one talks about it. I know. I usually <laughs> like to refer to it as a stage, and that way nobody really gets too confused Oh, about there you it. go. Yeah. I like that. Just change the word. Yeah. Stage. So I had some stage. We just make up a word. We should make up a word for. We Let's do it. Homework. Theatric stagicality. There you go. Um, stagicality. Stagical. Stage. <laughs> so stagical. Very stagical. It's like oh. when I was doing jazz hands in the last episode. I like that. I like that. So I got some stagical auditions. What for? Um, Can you talk about? One it? is for a musical workshop. Um, I think it's based on the movie Heather's. Heather's. Okay. Oh, is that like an 80s movie, isn't it? I want to say Kevin Bacon was involved somehow. Yeah, they're doing like a musical of it, but they're doing a workshop, and um, I got an audition for that. It's weird because the people involved, I don't want to start naming names, but the people involved, um, as my manager put it, reads like a who's who of the business. And so that's really exciting because it's like I will be, my stagical audition will be in front of people who are um, theatrical <laughs> people. Cool. Cool. Then I also got an audition for, um, are we saying auditions or meetings? We oh, keep, we right. keep Sorry. Slipping up. Uh, the other meeting was for the Neil Simon play Broadway bound, which 
is the third in a trilogy of plays called the Brighton Beach Trilogy. The first play being Brighton Beach, the second one being uh, Biloxi Blues, and the third one being Broadway Bound. That's going on at the La Mirada Playhouse. So, and so the the musical uh, workshop audition is actually on a weekend, which is bizarre. It's a, on a Sunday afternoon. And then the other one is uh, just a couple of weeks from now. Anyway, the point is, it's been really quiet. Um, and this, I feel like this always happens during the summer. Like, theatrical gets really quiet. Um, you know, film and television, not a whole lot going on. And then I start getting theater auditions. Hmm. Stagical auditions. <laughs> um, we coined another word. I love it. <laughs> we should have an IAP dictionary. We're going <clears> to <throat> need one soon, yeah. And it, it won't be, like, useful words. Like... People will like read it. Like people will come into town and into LA, and it'll be their first time here, and they'll be they'll be reading it. And they'll be like persistency, <laughs> and they'll stagical. They'll like go into a meeting and be like, "So yeah, I I've done mostly stagical." <laughs> God, agents oh, like you no. mean musicals? No, stagicals. Yeah, stagicals. Um, I heard it on the internet, so I it must it, be legit. It must be legitimate. Yeah. These two pieces of bread told me <laughs> that. <laughs> really. Oh, boy. What's up with you? Uh, What is up with me, man? I mean, it's only been a few days. I don't really have a lot of news. Like you said, it's been really slow. I haven't gone out. Um, I've definitely been uh, investing in myself uh, via, you know, reading more about the DIY movement. I I tend to read a lot. I tend to be one of those people that likes to read a lot about it and not actually take action on it. So um, I'm definitely growing the balls to actually move on it again. Cause you know, we did a, I did an interview with Mark for donor, my short film donor, uh, a week or two ago with Emily Grace, actually. So it was a little podcast love fest and she interviewed us for an upcoming product she's got. So it was really cool to kind of talk about the film and, and be asked questions about it rather than me just start talking about it to people. You know, it's mm-hmm. kind of cool to be interviewed about it. And I really just got reaffirmed that, you know what? We did do something cool. And it it was something that I really enjoyed and got a lot out of. And it's just this, I have this fear about doing it again because it's just a little bit outside of my comfort zone. You'd think that once you kind of go there and come back, you'd be like, it'd be easier. But what I'm learning is that every time it's like the first time, yeah. you know, especially like it is with every role. You know, every time you get a new role, you're like, when are people going to realize I'm a fraud? You know, I have that conversation a lot. And I know a lot of celebrities have that conversation. Kate Winslet is famous for for feeling like every time she gets cast, she thinks it's going to be her last role because she just feels like, I don't know what I'm doing. Like these people keep hiring me. And <laughs> so I, I have a little bit of that going She's on. Amazing. Yeah. I have a little bit of that going on myself and you know, I just, just get to go get over that. Well, I mean, how many of our guests have said, just make the next one or yeah, do it Ryan, again. Ryan or, Sage. Ryan Sage. His yeah. advice to me after I think we stopped recording, he said, just make another, just stop, stop like hovering over the one you just did and do start another. And yep. that's just the way to do it. Yeah. And you know, I'm just going to start small. I mean, I, we talked about making that filmmaking group on Facebook mm-hmm. and, um, I started to really realize that even though that's all good and well, I kind of was just like, you know what? That's playing kind of small. Like, why am I not just like shooting for like a feature film? Mm. Like, why am I not just like going, going big, go big or go home? You know, I'm in my thirties now and it's like, it's time to just... I don't want to shoot a scene in somebody's apartment anymore. I want to like, now I'm like, I'm really thinking of like going big with it nice. and just taking this by the balls and taking it seriously. And why not? You know, Tank Quentin Tarantino had a good quote. I read it somewhere the other day. He said, if you love cinema, you can't make a bad movie. And huh. I was like, wow. And I, the way I translated that is if, if you watch a lot of movies, you will absorb enough to it, to the point at which you will make a well-structured movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or if you're just passionate about it. Yeah. That's yeah. Why I took it. And there's a couple things on the burners, you know, like I talked to TJ Romini, um, from gosh, I don't know how many episodes, 50 episodes ago, maybe. And I've was taking classes with him for a while. And I'm going to kind of re up with that soon, but, um, he's got a bunch of shorts he wants to make. And so I'm kind of helping him organize the people and, um, may have a, a couple of roles in those shorts. And nice. it's, a, it's a really cool idea. So you know, I'm just kind of like in that world. I really realized that I'm not going to be satisfied being a hired gun. I've talked about this many times in the show, but I'm not going to be satisfied in my career being a hired gun. I'm really veering in the direction of just like, no, I get to have a hand in creating this as well. Mm-hmm. Like creating it from the ground up, from script, pr- production, direction, 
all that stuff. Yeah. So I'm excited about that. You know, I'm really kind of just feeding that passion lately. Yeah. And the more quality work you put out, the more people are going to trust you and want you to be involved with their projects or want you to helm their projects or, yeah. you know, <clears throat> donor is just a calling card. Yeah. Yeah. And the next one will just be a calling card for yeah. the next job. You know, it's just, uh, building your repertoire as they say, yes, you know, yes, repertoire. <laughs> um, so yeah, so that's, that's, that's my world lately, man. I'm just kind of demystifying that, that world for myself. Yeah. Good for you, man. Yeah. I can't wait to read it. Whatever it is. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a couple of things I'm kind of developing and working on, but, um, one that I'm really focusing on and I will share more as we get there. You know what else I did this week that I would love to assign as homework. If listeners haven't done it already is, um, uh, a budget. Yeah. Talk about I've, this. Cause I've you done, had some breakthroughs this week. I did, I, well, I did it. I, I've done it in the past, but I did it again this week. And essentially, I mean, look, it can be as simple as like making a spreadsheet. I mean, you could do it on pen with pen and paper if, if you, if you had to, but it can be, you know, as simple as going into creating an Excel spreadsheet and literally breaking down every dollar that you spend, um, over the course of a month, like, Every every expense, um, not just rent, car payment, you know, stuff like that, but getting down to the nitty gritty, like like say you buy a pair of shoes every year, and say that pair of shoes is costs you sixty dollars, right? And so that equals five dollars a month, you know, right? So, so you because it's sixty dollars over a year, you divide it by twelve, right? Right? That's five dollars a month. So you build like literally every dollar into your budget so that you can save up for those pair of shoes. And it's not just like a, you know, surprise, whatever, or, uh-huh. you know, you, if you say you are getting a lot of your income through 1099 and you're constantly paying in taxes at the end of the year, as opposed to getting returns, you build that in, you know, and, and you can make quarter. I think we've talked about this on the podcast before yeah. you can make quarterly payments to the IRS too, but people from other countries are going who point is broke it down dollar for dollar and really got my head around, you know, what is what's there, what's not there, you know, like literally how much money do I get to make in order to not only, you know, pay the bills, but also put money away. Cause I've never budgeted for, to the point of saving and I've never budgeted to the point of traveling. And that's mm-hmm. what I did. It was really exciting and very eye-opening and also very empowering. And that's mm-hmm. what that's why I want to, wanted to assign it yeah. as homework is is because of how empowering it was. I really love that. There's I, uh, having consciousness around that I think is so so crucial especially for people that are kind of living creatively based careers, mm-hmm. creative whatever. That people like artists and uh I think that the other part of that, the other half of that that's just as important is finding ways to maximize your income. You know, cause it's like, you can budget for a freelance kind of income and the minimum stuff, but it's like sometimes, and I'm speaking from experience here, we get so caught up in like budgeting for the money that I have that we take the focus off of how can I increase my income? Right. You know what I mean? Right. Right. So we end up, uh, cutting back or right, denying ourselves right. things or quote unquote sacrificing. But, you know, <clears throat> I had a trainer tell me once. Uh, you know, sacrificing is like cutting off your arm to give it to another person. Hmm. That's it. You don't get that arm back. Like it's not, you're taking a part of you in order to, you know, so you can sacrifice for yourself. You like cut off your own arm and give it to yourself. You know, it's, it doesn't make any sense yeah. as opposed to having a vision for like what your, you know, financial picture is going to look like and putting a num you know, like you've done this before I've seen it because I lived with you, but you know, literally, literally like putting a number on a piece of paper and then like, you know, sticking, tacking, it, sticking on it on a wall so <laughs> that walls, you see yeah. like that number everywhere you go, yeah. that kind of stuff rather than cutting back, like looking at all the different ways that you can create abundance and not what the word is shy about that. I mean, one of the breakthroughs that I had is I, we, we have a good, Oh, Caduce who was on the podcast. Yeah. Caduce said to me, um, the other night, just, and I mean, it was, we were at his birthday party. We were just hanging out. Like it wasn't a big, uh, it wasn't like we were having a serious conversation. And all he said was, are you bringing all of your expertise to bear? Mm. And I was like, I'm not really like I have so many things that I've learned so many skills that I've built up over the years that could potentially 
create prosperity in my life and I'm not, I'm not using it mm-hmm. for whatever reason. Uh, maybe I just hadn't been asked that question before. So being asked that question was huge. And that kind of started me on this path. Not only did I make my budget, but I'm also like thinking like, okay, what sort of things can I create in my life in order to, you know, bring prosperity. And, it, and it's interesting because it actually had me, um, uh, evaluate some of the things that we can do for the podcast as well, mm, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, um, yeah. are we as a, as a podcast, as a, as an entity, as a partnership, you and I, are we bringing our collective expertise to bear here? The answer to that question is always going to be no, but that's okay. Mm. <clears throat> like it's always going to be no. Cause you could never really, you know, you're always striving to reach your full potential and always growing, you know, as soon as you do reach your potential, there's another level. So it's like, you mm-hmm. keep going. So it's okay that the answer is no. But then it's like, okay, what are you committed to? What do you what what actions are you taking in order to get there? Right, right. You know? So a step for homework for people is you know put put your budget like put it on paper and get it in front of your face so that you can you know really get, and you know it's not about beat up. It's not like you you put it down on paper and then get depressed about how little money you're making or how you're in the hole or yeah. how yeah. you're in, in the in the red from month to month. Um, you know, celebrate it. Celebrate it how far you've come. Celebrate the fact that you have a cell phone bill. Like there are people who don't have cell phones. Yeah. So, can't afford it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So celebrate it all. And, and then, and then put it, you know, keep a smile on your face the entire time and say, okay, what's next? What am I committed to? What's, you know, what am I going to create? Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. I love that, man. When, when you posted that to our masterminds kind of group chat, uh, you posted that Caduce asked you that, that was like, it was a total ripple effect. Cause I was like, oh wow. Cause it was almost like he had asked me that as well when mm-hmm. you posted that. And so it was. I really started to think about that. And, and Gadali had the same reaction. Yeah, so it was like yeah. everybody was, whoa. <laughs> yeah, and it was so simple. Yeah. So thanks, Caduce. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, sweet. So uh, we have a thank you. We have a thank you and an email we wanted to respond to. So mm-hmm. first off, the thank you, um, Una. Am I? Say, I hope I'm saying that right. Una or Una? I, I think, think it's, it's Una. Una, mm-hmm. Una Love, uh, long time listener of the podcast, yeah, almost around since, the, since the beginning, yeah. since the very beginning, even called in a few times, um, is now our newest patron. She's uh, now supporting the podcast on a monthly basis. And that's huge, 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 huge. And Una's up to some really big stuff as well. If you head over to our patron page, her profile's up and she has links to some of the stuff that she's doing. And uh, it's really exciting. She's shared in her email um, this kind of business she's she's built uh, around supporting creative people and in, in achieving their vision and it sounds really exciting so make sure you guys check her out on our patreon page una love and uh wow lots of background noise today uh una thank you so much for your support we we love you long time uh, she's in the she's in the uk for those of you who don't remember so when you're yeah. checking out our patreon page um keep our her profile keep that in mind yeah yeah and we've got an email from charles uh charles is a long time listener who has called the podcast in the past uh and just wanted to a kind of thank us um he has some nice things to say about the show and then he had two questions uh and the first one was um he says actors have special skills listed and he has some special skills listed on his resume there's a whole section where you put special skills and it's thing like things like dialects uh i can drive a stick shift uh i can swim i can play tennis that kind of stuff uh but he was wondering if there are specific ones that he should try to learn based off his type and not necessarily him but people in general actors in general um and then he says for example if someone who's is black and they're really dark uh maybe an african accent would benefit them the same way that maybe uh somebody who's like I don't know, ethnically ambiguous, AJ. Maybe, uh, you <laughs> I don't know, know what you're talking you about. learn a, a, a Farsi accent or something like <clears throat> that. Uh, so, you know, I think that could only help. I mean, absolutely. The more specific you can be with these, with these types, absolutely. And this is one of those things where you kind of have to let go of maybe some of the ego conversations we might have about, about like, how dare you pigeonhole me? You mm-hmm. know, we've talked about this in the show before as well, but, um, you know, things like that uh you gotta let go of it and just go okay like if i were that guy in a, in a movie wait what does my what role would i serve in the story mm-hmm. what purpose what am i illustrating here in the story yep what's the most clear kind of archetype i can play yeah so i i, I love that question and i think absolutely in his example if you were if you were that type and you wanted to kind of learn an african dialect uh absolutely 
Yeah. And you'd be a shoe in for those guys when that when those roles come up. Yep. Those historical yep. dramas or whatever. Yeah, and it's also you know the um, L O Cool J or Will Smith you know philosophy. I can't remember who said it, but they said you know I I. I be ready so that I don't have to get ready. Oh, cool, Jay. You know? Yeah. I like to be ready so I don't have to get ready. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And it's the same thing. It's like, you know, it's not just having to do with like your physical, your, your, your physique. Um, although that's a huge part of it. It's also have, it has to do with your, your skills, your skill set. you yeah. know, like I can't tell you how many times like I've, I've gone in for an audition where I had to have an accent, just like you were saying. And, and it's not, it's not like I, I can predict every accent I'm going to go in for, but, you know, I can build a, uh, quote unquote repertoire. <laughs> there it is. There again. it is again. Uh, yeah. it's, it's the word of the day. Ah, <laughs> you Hermit's Playhouse. I think the answer is absolutely. Yeah. And Trump. in the end, you're really just refining your product. You know, mm. you are honing and crafting and polishing and refining your offering to the industry. And the more unique you can be and make that, and the more specific you can make that, the easier it will be for people to see you right when you walk through the door that's the guy. I know exactly who that guy is just by looking at him, just by the way he carries himself, mm-hmm. um, just by the way he says that one sentence at mm-hmm. the top of the sides or the top of the script that we that we gave him for the audition, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So absolutely, dude. Awesome question. Thank you for that, Charles. And then his second question uh, is, what schools, studio classes, not four-year universities necessarily, but classes that you can take, what schools in LA are the most reputable in the eyes of casting directors or agents? What looks good on the resume? If you have a couple off the top of your head, that'd be great. Uh, I know off the top of my head, I know re- uh, casting directors are often looking for improv training. Yeah, especially on your resume. especially commercial commercial casting yeah, directors, and, and specifically not just any old improv training, but specifically Groundlings, uh, Upright Citizens Brigade, Second City, and there's one more that I'm forgetting. Uh, there's comedy sports, Improv Olympic, Acme is pretty. Reputable. Acme, I think Acme is the other one. Yeah. So um, there's there's four big improv ones and definitely one of those probably Groundlings and Upright Citizens yeah and Second City are the top three although Acme's great too so I would say that most most studio classes that are reputable are the ones with like the big name teachers so like Larry Moss Margie Haber um, you know there's there are you know these these uh, Howard Fines uh, Howard Fine. There are these, you know, studio teachers who have a name, um, and they're really expensive because they sell that name. But they're also, you know, well known enough that the casting directors, you know, they do see those and, and think, oh, you studied with, you know, so and so. I mean, that being said, remember that it's not about having, you know, because they'll probably take anybody's money. It's not about having their name. It's not about buying their name to put on your resume. It's how do you show up in the audition? Mm-hmm. You know, because that's what the training is for. The training is not so that you can buy their name and put that brand on your resume. It's so that you actually get the training such that you are showing up effective, ready, right. emotionally dropped in, vulnerable, all that stuff in the audition itself. Yeah. Because if you're not, if you don't audition well, then it's like, yeah, you know, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything. Yeah. I was going to say there, there's a lot of, uh, like Ivana Chubbuck is one that I know that a lot of people have been to in the past and they love it, but they very rarely actually study with Ivana Chubbuck. They study with some kind of, um, other teacher in that studio. Uh, so it doesn't, that's the name theatrically, I think often doesn't necessarily mean what it might, what improv training might mean for commercial stuff. It's, it's all based on how you show up in the room. And if they're looking at your resume before they see your work, um, it's kind of rare, actually, I feel like. I feel like normally they get your headshot, they look in the back just to see your your credits, then they look at your work, and then they might look at your training. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, just off the top of my head, like he said, the, the improv training for commercial work is definitely a big one. So I hope that helps, Charles. Thanks for the questions. Two really good ones. Um, he also said, I just want to share this real fast. He also said a couple episodes back, we, we mentioned NC all the way back from episode six of the podcast. She's actually one of the people I wanted to talk to when I thought about starting the podcast. I was like, that's one of the people I want to reach out to. I want to have hmm. a reason to talk to her and not be creepy. <laughs> so, so, uh, so, but yeah, she said, uh, you know, that was about her getting around without a car and he decided to check it out, even though he was skeptical at first that thinking that, you know, it's a couple years ago now it might be dated. And then he said, uh, 
wow, he was really wrong. Although a lot of this stuff is kind of dated in terms of what was going on in the industry at that time. A lot of the principles are, are fairly timeless. So it was kind of affirming to hear that, that feedback. Let's roll into our interview with Blake and Armin. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. So this is uh, going to be a three-part interview, I think. And the first is uh, with Blake Robbins, who we've had on recently. He's a filmmaker, an actor. He does some coaching as well on the side. And uh, really, really cool, nice guy. Uh, if you haven't connected with him on Facebook or Twitter or anything, please do. He's a, he's a fantastic guy. And, and if you get a chance to check out the sizzle reel for his trailer... Uh, I'm sorry, this is a reel for his film. We'll stick it on the website again. But uh, we talk, we go a little bit deeper into how he made his film uh, in this first part here. And Armin chimes in uh, every once in a while, but we really get into Armin a little bit later. So enjoy this uh, first part, guys, and we'll catch you on the other side. Hey, everybody, welcome back. This is Trev, and I'm really. Really stoked to be sitting here uh, across from uh, IAP alum, Blake <laughs> Robbins, who's been here before, and he's back, and we're super very stoked, and Armin Shimmerman, who's a, a prolific actor. He's a member of the Antius Theater Company, directs over there. Um, come see us. Come see us. We'll talk about the show, which I'm excited to see. I saw a trailer about it recently, too, which which was very unconventional. Uh, and he's also probably best known for his role as Quark on Deep Space Nine, for all the Trekkies listening. I was a big Star Trek fan when I was a kid, so it's very cool to be watching, or sitting across from the guy that I used to see on TV when I was a kid back in Pennsylvania. So, guys, thank you for being here. Our pleasure. Hey, really stoked to have you. Yeah. Uh, so, we, we've we've had Blake on the show before, and um, we talked a little bit about your your process of, well, not only your acting journey, but your process of, of writing and, and basically being a filmmaker as well. Yeah. But we only touched on it briefly, and then after you left... You even said to me, like, I'd love to come back and talk nuts and bolts, and you sent me the, uh, a link to a rough cut of your film, yep. and I watched it, and I loved it. I was blown away. It was really beautifully shot and told, and everything about it was fantastic. Armin is, is in it, and uh, and then, and then I asked our, our Facebook group, our listeners, who what they wanted more of, and they said, we want more filmmakers, so... It's perfect that you're back. I'm trying to think of where to start because I know the thing that caught me the most about our our last chat with you, Blake, was that you you said like before you came in for the actual conversation, you were in your car with like a yellow legal pad writing. <laughs> I was like that's part of your process. So let's let's start at, let's start at the beginning there and talk a little bit about where the ideas come from, and then it just sounds like you grab whatever surface you can write on and then go for it. Yeah, I'm a I'm a yellow legal pad writer. Um, that's my, my trademark. That I uh, I write longhand just to get the thoughts down on paper, and then uh, and then uh, so what I'm putting it into um, uh, what's it called? What's the uh, I know I have it because I have the software. Final draft. There it oh, is. Right once, on. once I put it in the final draft, that's sort of a second draft for me. Um, I wasn't always a writer, um, and in in fact, I still sort of hesitate at the idea that I'm a writer. Uh, I, I definitely think I'm a filmmaker, and, and I'm comfortable with that. Um, mm. And I did write Sublime and Beautiful if I take responsibility for it. You but should. <laughs> okay, I will. <laughs> Thanks, Armin. <laughs> but Armin uh, will attest that uh, uh, the scene that I think is one of the linchpin scenes in the movie, I think that the movie's building towards that I really wanted Armin for the part, um, I had this placeholder of a scene, and right before we went to shoot it, I, I kind of told Armin, uh, we're just going to toss out the script and we're going to go. <laughs> My worst nightmare. <laughs> but you also had an actor come in and do an improvisational scene that was brilliant. Yes. And you should tell them a little about that, too. Which one? Uh, it was uh, the gentleman who played the cop. Yes. Yes. Scott Winters. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I do want to hear about this, but yeah. I feel like we should give people a little bit of a background about what the film is about. Exactly. We We've kind of jumped jump over in. it. Yeah. Uh, so I... I uh, as quickly as I can, I, I didn't really think of myself as a writer, but um, I moved to California in 2004, and I went through 9-11 back in New York City before I moved to L.A., and it inspired thoughts and feelings, and it was a source of inspiration combined with some other things. I, I started thinking about the fact that I wanted to write a movie that dealt with grief and 9-11 uh, for me was sort of a huge, overwhelming national grief. And that impacted me. But I, 
as an artist, felt like I could only deal with a microcosm, a, a story of grief within one family. Mm. So I started thinking about literally the term, an ordinary day that's sideswiped by tragedy. The idea that you get up in the morning and you have no idea where you'll be at the end of the day, because I feel like that happens to uh, so many people. I mean, if you live long enough, that's going to happen to everyone. One day is not going to turn out yeah. anything like all the rest of them. And that that just was with me for probably years uh, since 9-11, since I went to work that day as a bellman and, and – and literally was a mile down the road and witnessed the second impact. Hmm. So you went to work. I'm sorry. You went to work as a bellman. As a bellman. So in, back in 2001, you yeah, were. Yeah, I was cool. a bellman at the at the Morgan's Hotel and on Madison Avenue, and and I was working that morning shift. And I looked up, and and the fire was in the the first tower that was that had been struck. And as I'm watching it, I see the explosion come north oh, through the second tower, and immediately have one of those days, you mm-hmm. know, on a, on a on a humongous level so it stayed with me creatively I'm, I'm an actor so i'm a creative on some level um and i just kept playing this idea an ordinary day sideswiped by tragedy and it just stayed with me um and then and then real i mean uh, elements of the story my aunt was hit by a drunk driver when i was in college the drunk driver was put in the same um the same uh, recovery uh, hospital. Yes, yeah. it was. Yeah. They were in the same uh, intensive recovery unit because that was the hospital, and they had one room. And people suffering from those injuries end up in the same room. Uh, we changed it a little bit for our story, but that that had been with me. Uh, my best friend in college had passed away early in, in his life, uh, terribly early from from brain cancer. So whenever I watched, whenever I was drawn to a movie that dealt with grief. I always felt disappointed by it because it didn't, it didn't, it didn't reflect back to me what my experience of grief felt like. Hmm. So I felt like Hollywood or creatives or whatever that they had kind of always missed the boat, and that even the really good grief movies had become more performance pieces. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, let mm-hmm. me watch this actor go through this, and then I get this sort of distance from it because I'm actually watching the performance more than something that feels authentic to me and I, I love that about this film is that it didn't feel like a performance piece and yet and the performances were not that it, it, it wasn't a showcase and that i think yeah. that's why i felt like i really connected with it so much yeah i always felt put off by those performance piece grief movies or yeah. and or that it's going to get better <laughs> or yeah. you'll get you'll get over it yeah. And I felt, well, I was going to do such a small movie in such a small way that I had tremendous liberty to do whatever I wanted, however I wanted to do it. And there was no one saying, well, you can't do it this way. You know, we're in for this much money. We have to have this many people watch it. I was just determined to make a movie for myself. And and the people that I thought would respond to a movie, I would respond to and just mm-hmm. go from there. Mm-hmm. So, uh, So that's where I was. And an actor friend of mine who's in the movie, plays my best friend in the movie, sort of dared me to write something. Hmm. In a conversation, we had been going yeah. back, and he said, dude, write one scene. Yeah, Sit I remember down you and write this. one yeah. scene. I was kind of like, screw you. What are you doing? What are you telling? Yeah. You know, I got a little chip on my shoulder. What do you mean, write one scene? And he got so under my skin on some level that one night I couldn't sleep after having these thoughts about it for a year, two years. And I just started writing. And I just wrote the voices I heard. I wrote I wrote yeah. my kids' sounds and, and noises and what they said to me and how they said it to me and my relationships. And then I made, you know, I made twists and turns. But literally, I probably vomited it out, for lack of a better word, 70, 80 longhand pages of what is the core of the movie that now exists around 2005. See, wow. I just and, – and, and actually now I write primarily in a state of tiredness, you know, an overnight because the second film I wrote similarly. It was in me for a few years and then I just couldn't sleep and then I started writing. But now because I have this – my legs under me, so to speak, and I don't – and I don't play too preciously with it. I don't worry about whether it's good or bad. I just write. I, I have a little bit of confidence about it. I'll write in the car waiting to come up here. <laughs> you know, I'll just pull out one of those yellow pads and I'll go back. I have five, six, seven stories bouncing yeah. around inside my head 
And this has really unlocked me in terms of giving me permission. And, and, and I'm more defensive about how other people feel about my acting without question than I am about my writing. I don't assign any sort of, you know, anyone can, can criticize it, can, can, you know, tear it down. I, I, you know, it's not precious to me. It's only an opportunity to make a better film. Uh-huh. And that's how I collaborated with actors. So I, I ended up just going back to it, going back to it. Now, I had this script, and I thought it was pretty good, and my friends responded to it. And then I started getting it in front of people who could get financially involved. And just like everyone else in Hollywood, I have those two or three stories where, oh, those people turned out to be assholes and screwed me, and those people promised me something, and everything fell through at the ninth, twelfth hour. And so there came a moment... The winter before Armin and I did the play together where I said, I'd love for you to read this and see if you want to be involved in this. If I get it, well, well, I think I said when I get it to the place where I'm going to do it. And I just threw my hat over the fence is the phrase I use. I literally started telling people I was going to make this next winter. Yeah, I remember you mentioning that, yeah. I think the, I mean, really it's brilliantly simple. The best way to make a movie is to pick a start date. Deadlines are good for everything. Deadlines are an incredible thing for you know if you yeah. want to get anything done, no matter what it is, give yourself a deadline. Yeah, and then how how did you enforce? So the only thing that was enforcing that deadline is that you would have to go back to your friends with your tail between your legs and say, "I didn't make it by this point." Yeah, well, you know whether the the deadline moved. I think I originally thought I was going to shoot it before Christmas, and it ended up being after Christmas because there become realities. But what it merely was was. Um, I was going to shoot a movie, and if I had to shoot it on my cell phone, I was going to shoot a movie, and I was going to make that the best cell phone movie I could make. Hmm. Um, so, um, yeah, you got to pick a start date, mm-hmm. and you got to tell people when it is, and you got to start. Well, what you then have is people can see the train moving out of the station, and they can decide whether or not they want to be on it, mm-hmm. on it or not, and uh, and then. You know, much like picking a wedding day. If there's going to be a wedding on a certain day, (laughs) um, things have to happen between now and then, and we can start the process of making those things happen once we pick a day. Right, right. So the 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 I think the question I have because it I don't know if you guys saw the movie Looper <clears throat> yeah with uh, Bruce Willis and, and um, I, I Joseph Gordon Levitt a week or two ago it was it's a cool movie and the director I was reading an interview with him and he writes his films almost the same way he gets he gets one of those Moleskin notebooks and he writes it in there yep. and then when he transfers it into the software to put it in the proper format that's his actual editing process that's his second draft. Um, but I'm, I'm curious to hear what happened next. I mean, who did you talk to? How did you rally the resources, uh, the well, financing, all that stuff? All right. So the moment that I decided I was going to make a movie, I called three people, my mom and dad, to tell them. I thought I was going to need their support, and I thought they'd be excited about it. They knew I'd been kicking it around for a while. I called an actress named Laura Kirk in Lawrence, Kansas, and I said, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this in Lawrence, Kansas, and I think this is the place where I can do it for the the most reasonable amount of money with the most resources so I can put the best film on the screen. Um, I think this is where I have the best access to things that I'll need to make a movie, that I won't have money for those things. And she said, I'm in, and I said, I want you to play the wife. She knew the script. She's um, fantastic in yeah, the film. Yeah. She's wonderful in the film as an actress, and she just went above and beyond in terms of introducing me to that community and to the relationships I would need because it really became like a barn raising. Uh-huh. Um, and they were extremely good about offering things to Blake uh, in, in Lawrence while he was doing that. I mean, they, I remember the food that there was offered, yeah. the places where we got to stay, uh, incredible support. Wow. Yeah, well, that comes back to the do-it-yourself filmmaking, which is uh, a mindset that I had formed and then was reshaped in Mark Stoloroff's class, No Budget Film School. I Mm -hmm. highly recommend uh, anyone I talk to. I I say, you want to make a movie, go take this weekend seminar, and and he's online, so you can find the No Budget Film School. But uh, it had already kind of taken form in my mind before I took the class that – when people think about making a movie, they think about money. That's the natural connection. And I feel like that's a broken model for making movies. Hmm. Uh, I've seen a lot of bad movies made with a lot of money. <laughs> um, yeah. they're, they're on some level, though, necessary, but there's another way to think about it. 
what you really need to make a movie is people to shoot it, people to be in it, and a story. And none of that necessarily has to cost any money, Mm -hmm. depending on how you approach it. You can design your movie to what you have. I mean, it's the whole Robbie Rodriguez had a yellow school bus, so El Mariachi has a great yellow school bus because he had it. Yeah. yeah. It's it's as simple as that. The studios and even the independent world of financing films has taught us, and me too at, at a certain point, that, oh, I needed money. Well, I didn't need money. I needed a certain amount of money. And I ballparked that. And then what I started to do is work back from that. For example, I didn't put a whole post team in place because I thought the movie was going to be better than the post team I could get if I got them before I made the movie. Hmm. I made the movie without any idea what would happen after I got through production. That's really smart. It's a broken... I mean, that's not the way people make movies. In fact, you know, Marcy Liroff was having a little bit of trouble reconciling that with me. She would talk to me. I said, Marcy, we're going to get so much better a situation of post once I can show people how good the movie is. Yeah. And so if I try to put them in place beforehand, I'm going to get less than I can get once I show them how good the movie is. It's just an idea of thinking, oh, just because the rest of the world makes movies this way Uh doesn't mean you have to. I also thought most of these... Do-it-yourself, low-budget movies have one or two locations. You know, a bar. How many movies have we seen that takes place during 24 hours in a bar? That just wasn't compelling to me. I thought, you know what? There's a way to get 30 locations if you don't shoot in in L.A., Hmm. where you need Mm -hmm. permits and money. I went to a place where within two miles, I could get everything I needed simply by going in and saying, I want to make a movie here. Would you support that? And if they said no or if it didn't feel like the right fit, I went to the next and literally got every location from people. And, and, and this is what I offered them. I didn't shut down, shut down a single location during filming of the movie. We <laughs> shot, right? I mean, Armin knows we, we, we were shot in, a, in the hamburger stand and the people were coming in and ordering. Yeah. At lunchtime. That's right. At lunchtime, <laughs> it yeah. was lunchtime. The line. That's right. And then they gave us free food. At the, I don't know if it was free, but yeah. it was free. <laughs> they, they did. They, they, they fed us in the scenes, and then they fed us. I, I think we paid them. It was significantly, yeah, I mean, it was yeah. a fraction of what. Yeah. Did you not need to get release forms for them, though? I did. Oh, you did? I so. stationed PAs at the at the exteriors mm-hmm. of the location yeah. out, of, out of frame. And would have the, the, the production assistants talk to everyone, you know, as they were coming through. There's a movie going on. Please ignore the camera. Go about your business if that's okay. And if not, just hold for a second. And they wow. would just talk to those people. And and because I guess we're in the Midwest in Lawrence, Kansas, it's a different energy. Um, I can't remember a single time being held up by someone saying, no, 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 or I'm not. Uh, your you know? PAs were pretty good. They, they, while you were shooting on the, the day that I was shooting outside that restaurant, they talked to a lot of people. Nobody said no, but the PAs were very good about saying what we're doing. And, and, and the people said, sure, no problem whatsoever. Yeah, and you yeah. want to sign your paper? I'll be glad to do that. Hmm. Yeah, everyone signed and everyone said yes. And even better for the movie is none of them really looked at the camera. Yeah, I was going to say, you didn't have any, like, smart asses, like, do a dance behind the Well, another rule I broke about making a movie is um, I hired a DP who who didn't require grip and electric. My experience of being an actor is when I watch a movie is that 50% of the time is spent setting lights. Yeah. So yeah. I knew I couldn't set, I couldn't make a movie setting lights. I yeah, you know, most of it was natural lighting, wasn't it? It was all ambient light. It was all ambient light. I mean, he was brilliant at using the, what was given to us. We kind of created a look for the film. We went for a a, 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 a more aggressive color correction thing. Um, we, we we wanted, you know, we wanted to if we were going to use the light that was given, what were we going to do to help us tell our story and help people feel the way we wanted them to feel about what was going on in the scene? And it was by sort of ramping up everything that was given to us and shaping it to a certain degree, but hmm. but not uh, not recreating it. Um, so we used all practical locations. We didn't shut them down. We So it was easier for people not to look at us because there wasn't really that much of us to look at. Uh-huh. And I seldom called action. Uh, I, yeah. I, I, it was a series of head, you know, because when you call action, everyone in the restaurant freezes. Like, what just happened? <laughs> yeah, right. You know, I, yeah. I say action. Everyone's head yeah. turns to what's going on over there. 
So, you know, Armin and I had a conversation and I shared him with him what the scene was going to look like or the shape of it or what I kind of wanted him to do. You know, he was a pro. He would go over there. And then if I just gave him a head nod or, you know, a little I'm, I'm, I'm spinning my finger around, uh-huh. you know, the, the universal yeah. sign for we're rolling. We're rolling. Yeah. And we're crazy. Or we're crazy. <laughs> or we were probably crazy and rolling at the same yeah. time. And also I used a lot of non-actors and I never wanted them to sort of be overwhelmed by the mechanism of the of the movie. Hmm. That's how I kept them comfortable at almost all times. Many times they didn't know. I would just be having a conversation with them, and I'd do an even more private signal to my DP and my sound team, who got really good at reading my my things, and they would know that we were supposed well, to start my taking. Ear yeah, and when I would my itch nose. my ear. Yeah, I mean the ear thing was a big one. When I would tug on my ear or whatever, that would mean start rolling on this actor. Some of them weren't actors. And sound would no kind of way. go discreetly into place, and then this person would just be having a conversation with me. That's so that's so cool. You know, Ed, I, I read a thing with Ed Burns, mm-hmm. Edward Burns, who does a lot of indie films, and he shoots he shoots on a five D, and it's usually just a three person crew, and sometimes he'll be the he'll be operating the camera. But I remember reading in this article about this film he just did recently called Newlyweds, where he literally just went to the owner of this restaurant and he said, "Hey, shoot him." I mean, he's at Burns, so he's yes. got that going for him. But he went and he said, "We're going to shoot a movie. Can we just use his back table? We won't shut you down or anything." And the guy was like, "Sure." And the camera they're shooting on is so. I mean, it's, it looks like a point-and-shoot camera. Yeah. The 5D is just a... It's primarily for photography, not video. And they just shot there and just rolled, and they just used china balls, I think, for the lighting. And, yeah. and they used, got it in, like, two hours. They got that scene they needed. Yeah, we used some china balls. We used some, we you know, some of that. Yeah. That's crazy. And then the, the second thing that came to mind, too, is that when you said you shot the film before you had any of your post team in place... Yep. I really think if you're going to go the crowdfunding route... Yep. That's that's like the way it's done now because the the, the crowdfunding campaigns that I see to, that are successful are always the ones that have a large portion of the project already completed. It's yep. the ones where people go, "I have this cool idea, give me money so I can make it." That tend to. Well, in that my was me. I was the second one. Well, yeah, they seem to not get made. But when you when you come to it and you say, "Hey, I've shot this much, or we just need this much more to get completed," and you right. can show footage or show what you've done so far, people are usually like, "Oh, you know, they're not just." looking for a free ride they're already invested in it so i don't know just there's a there's a subtle dynamic there that it would have been a lot easier had i had the film done and needed the money then uh, but i needed the money to actually make the movie oh i thought you said you'd already shot it no you said i okay i I funded the movie through kickstarter and some family donations Uh um but when I started the Kickstarter campaign, we didn't have anything. What I what I did is the money that I was able to raise, I spent in production. Okay. And I had nothing left over for post. And then I had to deal with post after. Gotcha. I, I said, the destination will be to have a film in the can. When I get there, then I'll have a project that will draw post-production talent to it because I'll be able to show them the stills. I'll be mm. able to show, show them the raw footage. Um, my my DP put together some great screen grabs, and we put a lookbook together. And, and also, you know, thankfully for him, he just knew some great editors, and he said, this thing looks crazy good. Mm. It looks crazy good. You're not going to believe how good this little film is that we're making in this crazy, bizarre way. Mm. Um, mm. So I just had more momentum. So my idea was... This was also when you have a little bit of money to make a movie, you're going to spend it. So why kid yourself and say I'm going to take this amount of money and I'm going to get through production and post production? My personal feeling was if I had X amount of dollars to get through production and post production, I would have spent it all in production anyway because mm-hmm. there's never enough money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I didn't want to fool myself. I didn't, you know, I. Just said, well, what I have is what's going to get me through production, and I'll deal with post-production once I know I got a really good film in the can, and then we'll see. I mean, I had to go raise mm-hmm. some more money. Luckily, one of my investors through Kickstarter by then gave me a little bit of seed money at the end that I wasn't expecting and said, here's something for post. Wow. Um, That's cool. And another rule is, uh, you know, you have to house people, so... All the way along, I had this crazy idea that someone was going to come forward and donate a house that we could keep our cast and crew from out of town in. 
and it literally happened. Someone gave us a house and said, "Here, you got the run of the place." It was a, it was gorgeous accommodation. Yeah. The house you shot in by chance? On the lake. We used it as a, we used it as a, um, as a location for one of the scenes. Cool. Because everything has to serve several purposes, uh-huh. and uh-huh. if you're there. You know, you want to save money. You want to be there. You get up. You start shooting. So, how how big was your crew? Uh, it was bigger than I had anticipated because when you do make a movie in Kansas, everyone wants to be a part of it. Hmm. And locals, you mean, or people yes. well, the students in the in the school as well in, in the oh, motion okay. picture school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you tap that? Did you reach out to the schools and say, "I'm here yeah. looking for free labor," essentially? Um, well, there's a couple of filmmakers there that I had made a film with, so I kind of had access to some of those people. I had worked with them as an actor on their films, so I sort of had um, pre-screened, if you will, the, uh-huh, okay. the community for who who are the who are the better camera people, who are the better energy, who you know, who do I want involved in this? Um, but when you and I did pay most of my crew, most of my keys got a little something. Um, for those two weeks, that's 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 another way financial. I did it. I I decided to shoot the movie in twelve days and treat it like an hour and a half of television. Hmm. I was like, well, I've shot, I've, I've done episodes of Oz and, and these things and these things, and you get eight days, sixty minutes, roughly, or fifty-five, sixty minutes in eight days. So I was hmm. like, why can't I take this approach to make a movie? Um, I'll shoot twelve days. And I'll get 90 minutes of footage for my film. Mm-hmm. Um, just because films don't shoot that way doesn't mean I can't make a movie that way. It's just And you weren't worried about lighting either, which takes up a lot of time. So exactly. Yeah. That was 50% of my time. Yeah. And, I, and I also shot all the rehearsals. Oh, smart. I, and when you're digital on a red camera, it's, you, you have a lot of space you can burn through. You don't have to worry about film costs. You don't have to worry about yeah. film costs. Um, uh, I wanted out of those 12 days, I wanted 20 to 24 hours of footage because I wanted to have the same amount of footage I would have if I did a 30-day shoot, which I thought was a more conventional independent film, 24 to 30 days. They usually come out of it with about an hour of footage a day. So I was going to like, well, I'll just do the math. I need two hours of footage out of 12 days. Uh-huh. So I'll just keep these cameras rolling. Uh, but I'll make sure I'm rolling on something. I mean, it wasn't just, you know, an extra hour of crap because I was just rolling. Uh, little things I did. Uh, I'll, you know, here's a little secret. I told my DP and my sound team that every day after lunch we had to shoot something within 15 minutes of coming back from lunch, whether it made it into the final cut or not. Because I feel like every set I've ever been on loses an hour after lunch getting back and shooting something. And mm-hmm. I was like, the simple act of firing off a shot gets people quicker into the mode of okay we're shooting more film so i found that we started losing 10 to 15 minutes Mm -hmm. no one you know if we started shooting something so so i always had them prepared with a shot that we were going to shoot when we were right back from lunch little things like that same thing at the beginning of the day there had to be a shot that we were going to get 10 or 15 minutes after we hit the hit the ground so that everyone was on alert right as opposed to and I, and I did. I mean, God bless them. Like you said, that the people in Kansas were, they were eager, eager, determined. Um, they 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 they, they were inexhaustible. Yeah, inexhaustible. That's the truth. Inexhaustible. But I also thought I can run them like it's going to be a sprint, but only if it's for a certain amount of time. Mm-hmm. So that's why I kind of created the twelve day work week because by day number six, when they need that day off and they get it. They also see that fifty percent of the movie's done, so I can run them another week. Mm. I can't. You couldn't do that to them over twenty-four days or even twenty. Right. I mean, by day three or four, if they had to look in, you know, if they had to look in the mirror and see, you know, eighteen more days, they're done. Right. But 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 me, by day three, they saw that we already had twenty-five pages of film shot. They saw their day off, and they knew we could get. Well, I can run this hard for two weeks. Okay, guys, welcome back. Hope you enjoyed part one of our chat with Blake, part deux, 
version <laughs> 2.0 of our chat with Blake? Was that just <laughs> part one? Part, part one, of, one. Part one of three of the second. Two, yeah. <laughs> clunkiest episode ever i thought you were gonna say welcome back to the bread <laughs> <laughs> welcome back to the sandwich it's the bread oh, uh geez. so um yeah man you know i i really like i said earlier i'm really getting into that that world and i'm really excited about that and that's something that i haven't felt i don't think in a long time i've just been so kind of stuck in the audition wait audition wait kind of mentality which doesn't serve anybody <clears throat> So um, uh, I loved being able to sit down with him and just go a little bit deeper and just ask him some of the questions that, you know, a five-year-old might ask uh, somebody about something really seemingly simple, you know, <laughs> like, so, you know, whatever it was that I asked. <laughs> so anyway, man, um, what's your pick of the week? My pick of the week is the TV show Doctor Who, but I discovered that the show has been around since the 1950s. Yeah. And it's the same concept, and it's been going for uh, for a really long time, and then it was off the air for like 14 years um, in the 80s and early 90s, and then it came back, and it's the current iteration that it is now. The Doctor is played by a different actor every few years. They get James some, Bond style. somebody new. Yeah, exactly. Very mm-hmm. much like James Bond. And it is a British TV show, so I wonder if that's just like a thing that the Brits did, <laughs> do. There are a ton of episodes on netflix going back to the 1950s where it's like super cheese ball very low production quality but like like really fascinating to watch that versus like what is going on today Mm -hmm. but it's the same damn concept like exactly the same and so yeah so it is very james bond in that way like same same concept right just different movie I just started watching some of the episodes, even going back to the 1950s, and then some from the 90s. And I haven't, I haven't like caught up or started watching any of the new episodes yet. But I just, it, I don't know what it was, but it just, I found that concept so fascinating. Like I don't think we have an equivalent. I mean, James Bond is like the only equivalent that we have, but that's not that's a that's a that's a movie series, not a television series. Like I can't think of an American equivalent to it i i don't know if you where the actors switch out every couple years not only that but you know where it's been going on for as long as it has and so i just anyway i found it fascinating and and since it's you know most people have these days are paying for the eight dollar a month subscription for netflix Mm -hmm. um which by the way went on my budget thank you very much um you know uh i think that you know you can go and you can go and, and and watch them for free it just i don't know i found it really really fascinating so and so then, so just the show then just doctor who yeah yes okay cool yeah cool good pick dude i like it <laughs> uh mine is very themed with what i've been talking about this entire episode uh filmmaker magazine which uh uh-huh. it only comes out quarterly it comes out every three months but mm-hmm. i find the articles and the interviews and the stuff they the kind of supplementary content they have on their website i find it really really valuable i really like digging into the creative processes of these people and so I really dig that uh, that magazine a lot. So I've I've got a couple issues um, from a while ago that I've just been kind of revisiting, and it's just it's really cool. I really 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 dig what uh, what they offer. So filmmakermagazine.com. I think uh, subscriptions, which gets you both a print and digital version of the of the magazine, as well as I believe access to all the archives in digital format for your oh, wow. iPad or whatever. It's only eighteen bucks a year. So it's a really great investment. You can write wow. it off, of course, because it's an education expense or yeah. an R&R expense. So, um, uh, or, I'm sorry, R&D expense. <laughs> I was like, rest R&R, and recreation? Uh, rest, I don't understand um, why that's a write-off. Yeah. But. yeah. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> start writing cool. off my trips to the spa. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, we have a listener pick of the week. Did you want to go with... The one we have is here? this uh, Susan Moss? Yeah, awesome. Yeah, so Susan's awesome. a longtime supporter of the podcast. Yeah, uh, been a patron for pretty much since we started the patron thing. And we've actually met Susan. We went out to breakfast with her a little while mm-hmm. ago. She came to LA and took us to breakfast, and it was really wonderful to meet her. And she recommends a book called "What Happy People Know" by a guy named Doctor Dan Baker. And already I'm intrigued just by the title, but what yeah. she actually said after this is what really sells me on it. She said, uh, it's a major takeaway to combat nerves. It is physiologically impossible for fear and gratitude to coexist in the body. And that was just like, 
you know, like, wow, that's true, I think. I mean, imagine going into a meeting and you're nervous as hell. It's for some huge screen test for some network series regular thing. And you're about to meet all the producers and you're feeling the nerves. And then you go, I'm so grateful to be here. I don't think, I mean, I haven't tried it yet, but I don't <laughs> think, I don't think it is possible for fear and gratitude to coexist. I don't think they can, they can be together. I think one cancels out the other. Yeah. Well, we talked about in the previous episode that that experiment that they did where they hooked up, you know, uh, electrodes yeah, to people's brains and yeah. put them on a roller coaster. The roller coaster thing. And yeah. it was like fear and excitement are the same chemical process yeah. in, in your brain. So really, so what we talked about then was that that is about your interpretation. So interpreting, mm-hmm. interpreting that those, those emotions, those chemicals as excitement as opposed to fear. And that's, I think, what gratitude could do mm. is support mm-hmm. in reinterpreting whatever is coming up. For yeah. you. So, like, if you're feeling fearful and you say, yeah, I'm so grateful to be here, all of a sudden that fear becomes excitement. <sighs> Dude, <laughs> I, love, I love this stuff. And that is very cool. Very cool. I, yeah, the, you're right, though. The title is, like, so fa- I want to I wanna pick that up. Yeah. Thanks, Susan. I'm going to check that out. <laughs> Check it out from the library. Also, uh, just kind of side note, best kept secret of any city is the library. Did we, yeah, we talked about, we, we didn't talk, talk about this online. We talked about this offline with Faye Wolf, with right? Faye, yeah. Oh my goodness. Go, go ahead. Cause you have, so I, I just, I just love it. I think the library is amazing. You can go and get any book, pretty much any book for free. And if they don't have it, they'll order it from another branch and have it shipped to that branch. And you can just recheck it out online as often as you want. It's just amazing. It's like, it's almost like, I almost like wouldn't pay for a book anymore unless I wanted it on my Kindle and it wasn't available. Whoops. It wasn't available. Um, you know, on the ebook library website, or, uh, I just really wanted to own it and like mark it up with notes. Other than that, like, it's just amazing. You can, the world of knowledge is free. I mean, the, it's like the internet, but it's in book form and it's, (laughs) it's It's like the internet in book form, but it's it's also a lot more reliable. Yeah. It's all a lot more reliable than, I don't know. I got, I, I, I'm excited about it. And I went to the the Santa Monica library the other day, um, which is kind of new. It's a new building. Mm -hmm. It's been around for a couple of years, but it's relatively new. Um, and now they charge $25 for non Santa Monica residents to have a library card there. So I was, I had a bunch of books I was going to get and I ended up not doing it cause I don't want to pay the 25 bucks, but there's a Culver city library not far from here that I'm going to totally just go and get this book at <laughs> and, and as I end that sentence with a preposition, <laughs> get this book at, uh, they have, uh, they have, we talked about it with Faye, they have movies, they have audiobooks. yeah at the library and, and she was talking about how ridiculous, like they've even like we live in a digital age. Here's the tech, here's the technology age coming in and like ruining everything, including libraries. <laughs> she was like, you don't even have to talk to people anymore. <laughs> like she was <laughs> no. talking about how you can go online and do everything online and like even check out the book or whatever. And then they have it waiting. There's like this shelf when you walk in, there's yeah. a barcode on that. There's a barcode on your library card. You like scan the book, you scan the barcode on your library card and you just walk out. Yeah. She's like, I don't even talk to anybody anymore. It's it's like terrible, but it's amazing. Yeah. And like she had this stack of, she's um, working on a book right now and she had a stack, like her own book, writing a book. And mm-hmm. she had this stack of books uh, for research and they every single one of them was from the library. Yeah. And I was like, That's I so feel cool. like, I don't know. I, I don't I guess maybe libraries got a bad rap when we were kids, you know, and like you're in school and like. Yeah. I think we usually re- re- equated them with like research and term papers and deadlines and all that stuff yeah and and it just it lost its like its luster it's it's fun i think uh i think there are probably a handful of people out there who just loved that and and never lost that but i did Mm -hmm. (laughs) i i lost it and and so i remember faye talking about that it got me really excited to to read again Cool, man. So uh, there it is. What Happy People Know by Dr. Dan Baker, listener pick of the week. Thank you, Susan. So if you're listening to this podcast and you want to kind of get more involved, you know where to go, we hope. And if you don't, let us tell you. InsideActingPodcast.com, where you can email us, leave us a voicemail, and or leave a comment on the website. Email address is InsideActingPodcast at gmail.com, and the voicemail line is 213-2-ACTORS. That's 213-222-8677. And, of course, we are on all the social networks, Facebook, Twitter. Just do a search for Inside Acting or go to Facebook or Twitter.com slash Inside Acting. Yeah. As well as 
Actor Rated, and iTunes, where you can leave a five-star review telling the internet, not us, the internet, how much you love us, uh, so that uh, people will continue to flock to uh, the podcast and take a, a listen, and we yeah. can continue to add value to the business. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, if you're listening to this and you think, you know what? That sounds awesome, guys. I'm doing all of the above, but I just want to give a little bit more. <laughs> um, the way that this podcast keeps going is through listener donations. Right now, we're listener-supported 100%. So all of your contributions to the podcast go directly back into production costs, and uh, we need it to keep going. So please, 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 if you get value out of this thing, hop over to our, web- our website. On the right-hand side of the page is a donate button, and you can donate via PayPal, uh, a one-time lump sum of any amount that you choose, or, uh, or a recurring monthly donation, in which case we call you a patron and um, have a lot of little perks in store, as well as uh, putting your, your photo and a little blurb with links to your websites on our patron page on the podcast. Everybody can see that you're awesome and you support this, this thing and are part of the community that uh, giveth as well as taketh. So uh, thank you so much to everybody who's doing that, and please consider doing it if you are not. It makes a big difference in our world and uh, keeps the podcast rolling along. 